Good afternoon. I'm Sue O'Connell in for Callie Crossley. And today we're looking at the week's news with John Roosh, editor of the Jamaica Plain Gazette and Mission Hill Gazette, Peter Kadzis, executive editor of the Boston Phoenix, and Seth Daniel, senior reporter of the Independent News Group, which includes the Revered Journal. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks. Certainly uh, another another yep. newsmaking week for us, which is great. Peter, I'm going to start with you and, and talk a little bit about a story that broke uh, a week ago Wednesday, just as um, many of our newspapers were going to press, and that was Barack Obama coming out in support, personal support, of uh, marriage equality, same-sex marriage rights. And um, you possibly have the gayest cover that the Boston <laughs> Phoenix has ever had, and, and we've that's had some, hard to say. <laughs> and we've had some good ones. <laughs> it's hard to really top that, but you have. You've got uh, Barack sailing the, uh, the waters of America, the Potomac, as it would be, with his rainbow flag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, George uh, uh, Barack Obama crossing the Delaware. The Del- you're right. You're right. The Delaware. Thank you. But uh, thanks for the compliment. Uh, well, we've been as a newspaper, pretty gay, on on, on, <laughs> on board. Yeah. For a long, long time. Yep. Um, and David Bernstein, our top political guy, wrote um, a story that looked ahead that that used Barack Obama's. Um, final come to Jesus moment, thanks to the vice president. Yes. I, why do they keep giving him grief for that? But that's not the topic we're on. Well, <laughs> making the vice presidency finally uh, relevant again, yeah. Joe Biden. Um, he, he should get a uh, one of those profile and courage awards <laughs> that the Kennedy Library gives right. out. <laughs> anyway, David, you know, really talks about five things. First, he said that now in the wake of the president's endorsement, you know, um, uh, people battling to overturn um, uh, restrictions on same-sex marriage in specific states will be going on the offensive. They won't really be being defensive anymore because even though it's not a slam dunk, you do have the power and prestige of the president of the United States behind you. That's a, in New England, this means a lot in Maine where uh, people are working now to one do the damage done a few years ago. Yeah, and it goes back and forth in Maine. This yes. is, uh, yeah. it, same-sex marriage is legal, then it isn't, and it's uh, an ongoing process. Yeah. Um, secondly, uh, the Democratic Party is now the party of all marriage. It, it's, it's, it's the inclusive party. And this really matters. For example, Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island, who was uh, um, uh, a true blue Democrat, um, very moderate, moderate to, to liberal, but in a state that had just recently rejected same-sex marriage. Uh, two hours after Obama spoke, uh, Senator Jack Reed's office was on Twitter, on Facebook, released and saying they were following the president's lead and were firmly in favor of same-sex marriage now. I'm not making light of this. Uh, Reed's a former military officer. You know, he sees the president as the commander-in-chief. Obama spoke. Jack Reed followed. And things like that really matter. It's also it's also important to note that the, the power of the bully pulpit, uh, yep. which, you know, here is something the president says, which has absolutely no concrete immediate result. It is. You know, a, the, no it, law changes. Nothing changes in terms of how it affects the, the laws of, and, and, uh, of each state in regard to marriage. But at the same time, uh, it changes uh, the Democratic Party. It changes uh, armed services, and also a lot of many African-American clergy uh, who have been quietly, much like Barack Obama, with a wink and a nod supporting same-sex marriage, but have not been leading their congregations, are now given cover to do the same. No, and that leads into two other points our piece makes, and th- the importance of being decent. Just the way in which Obama talked about his his evolution. conversion, his evolution, <laughs> Um, he wasn't wrapping it in the Constitution. He was talking about around his dinner table. And, you know, we say that's the importance of being decent. And, you know, talking about talk, talk spurs change. And by talking about it, you know, there's a greater chance of it getting. But really what this does is the whole way in which this has been handled is a very sharp contrast to the cold and heartlessness of, a drum roll please, the Republican nominee, Mitt Romney. You know, it's unfortunately for Romney, the, uh, the news of him scalping a former 
student, a student cutting his hair. I'm being yeah, a little, a, I'm a cl- yeah, a, a high school mate. <laughs> a high school mate. Yes, giving him a, a haircut. The, the or sword- more, more frighteningly, not remembering he did it. Oh, I, I'd no. actually give him a pass on the doing. It's the remembering that that the, the the lack of remembering that worries me. Yeah, or he could have said, "Say he honestly didn't Doesn't remember." remember right. You'd say, "Geez, I honestly don't remember that." But my God, if I did that, right. that was horrible. Yeah, that's all he had to say. But also the nasty way in which he talks about immigrants. Um, I mean, Romney's a cold guy, uh, but the polls show him climbing. But anyway, no Biden. Biden saves the presidency. I guess is how we should. We I hope. <laughs> John Roosh over at the uh, Jamaica Plain Gazette. You uh, mark the eighth anniversary of mm-hmm. marriage equality here in the state of Massachusetts. The uh, Goodridge case and and the subsequent marrying of couples, legal marrying of of gay couples here in the state. Jamaica Plain was uh, was the birthplace in some ways mm-hmm. of uh, of the movement that brought that. Yeah, I mean, the lawsuit that successfully, uh, you know, the state lawsuit that in 2003 uh, uh, led to the legalization of same-sex marriage uh, was uh, Goodridge versus Department of Public Health, named for the, uh, the JP couple, Julie and Hillary Goodridge. Uh, it had a couple other JP plaintiffs. Um, I think, you know, this goes to uh, Peter's point about uh, the decency angle, the decency issue, uh, which is, you know, for us, for a long time, this was just a local story about our neighbors. And that's why it wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, it was a groundbreaking lawsuit, but it wasn't so groundbreaking in the sense of these were people we knew and saw in the grocery store and so on and so forth. That these are, you know, it's not a wedge issue that's flying around out there abstractly. This is about real decent people who contributed to our community. So uh, that's what it's all about. That's the angle the president took in speaking about it and how, you know, the new generation, his children, to see this as a non-issue. So again, it's people they know. Um, so it, yeah, it's a local story for us. It will continue to be. We'll have some uh, some response pieces on that coming up soon. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a human issue. Yeah, it's a human issue, and a lot of things didn't change. Lots did, and lots didn't. Seth, over to you uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, Revere Journal. Um, you know. The, the effects of the economic crisis and, mm-hmm. and some of the lack of uh, uh, availability of jobs for, for folks is affecting everyone. Sure. But one of the uh, community's hardest hit seems to be the immigrant community, <coughs> especially mm-hmm. um, those kids graduating from high school and college now mm-hmm. uh, who maybe have, have been born here or, you know, have come over here, mm-hmm. first generation. And the lack of jobs uh, is really uh, is hitting the Revere community hard. Well, well yeah, I mean, this is... Um hitting uh, students. Um, it, it's not only immigrants, but I can, I can say that definitely, you know, a lot of, the, um, a lot of the, their parents were doing really well in construction. I mean, construction was booming. They were making money. They could send their kids to college on what they were making. Um, it, it also holds true for, like, uh, there are a lot of middle managers from, uh, from uh, say, um, banks, downtown Boston, financial sector, and they've lost their jobs, right? So, so now kids are looking to go to college, and the parents don't have the income that they had before. Um, they can't go to a four-year university, and this is trickling out now, starting last year, but really so this year. Kids are looking more to community college. Um, in Revere, uh, for instance, and in Everett too, but in Revere, about 85% of the kids went on to a four-year university um, just a few years ago, and that was, that was the biggest number ever. And then it's declined since... since uh, you know, the joblessness has, has crept up. So you'll get kids uh, now who are perfect candidates, very smart, perfect candidates for a four-year university, and they are out of necessity going to a community college. In fact, there is, uh, I've heard from one guidance counselor, a lot of competition this year for the community college scholarship, which before was seen as kind of a step backwards. Where and also it's, ran uh, a consolation co- prize. Yeah. Consolation prize, exactly. But now it's, it's what kids are doing, and, and it's becoming... Um, of course, it's, there's some peer pressure, but it's becoming more accepted. And in fact, the guidance counselors, I've heard at two of the public schools, say, you know, this is a smart move. Go there for two years, get your, um, you know, your Reading, English writing, 101, right, right. all that stuff, mathematics, basic math, whatever you have to take. Do that at the community, community college where it's much cheaper. Transfer um, to uh, the, the university of your choice after that. And, and uh, you'll have a lot less debt and you can, uh, you know, move on into the job world from there. Um, having taken that path rather than 
what used to be the traditional path of a four-year university. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. We're going over the week's local news with Peter Kadzis of the Boston Phoenix, John Roosh of the Jamaica Plain Gazette and Mission Hill Gazette, and Seth Daniel of the Revere Journal. You know, uh, John, it was... um, Fascinating to me to to read. Also, uh, I love the local local angles this week in the in the Jamaica Plain Gazette, especially the Elizabeth Warren issue, which mm-hmm. is just you know not going to go away. Her her uh, uh, claiming of her heritage of of being Cherokee, of being Native American, you know it it resonated with me on a lot of levels because I probably am more Native American than she is. Uh, and um, Of course you are. <laughs> and my mother worked really hard to find, you know, back in the 70s, if there was a scholarship for me to get. You know, we, we did nothing that was in any way, shape, or form Native American, except her grandmother, my mother's grandmother, was Native American. And unfortunately, it was they didn't keep very good records on birth certificates and those things back in the 1800s, so there was no real trail. But I was just, my mother could have gone to college on a scholarship, but I couldn't. But never once except to take you know advantage of, of an opportunity did I think that I am culturally Native American, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and you know, you, you're meeting yeah. a lot of people as we talk about this in the mix. People say, yeah, well, my grandmother was Native American, but I would never, you know, I have a friend who was uh, adopted, found out her heritage was Puerto Rican, was raised as a Greek. She says, I never walk around saying I'm Hispanic <laughs> because I didn't find out I was Hispanic till I was yeah. 19. You know, and you hit a very, very good nerve. Uh, on the Elizabeth Warren story regarding, well, if if you're so proud of your heritage, why didn't you visit the Native American Center in Jamaica Plain or Mission? Is yeah, it, it's kind of it's on the JP, it's, JP, yeah, yeah, it's kind of on the on the border there. Because I but went yeah, there to try and get a scholarship, and they they wouldn't give me one, so I know exactly where it is. <laughs> well, Warren has certainly been to JP a lot, campaigning like crazy. Um, and uh, but uh, yeah, despite her uh, her apparent uh, <laughs> profound interest in reaching out to fellow American Indians, she has n- not gone there. And uh, yeah, we just decided to call them up and see what they thought. Um, you know, and there was there was clearly some hurt and upset that she has not uh, has not visited. And there's an invitation for her to go there, which of course she she now will never do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess this this issue just struck me as uh, if, if she were uh, claiming to be of any other race or ethnic background that she, you know, aside from Caucasian, I can't imagine that that she would get this treatment of uh, of uh, you know we don't even call up the the local Native mm-hmm. Americans and ask them what they think about it. Um, that has changed a bit. The Herald has a big story now with a lot of reaction from from American Indians, but. Uh, it's strange that that how much of a pass she got on this. I think. So yeah. that, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Peter. I was going to say, I think they botched it. Here's what, they here's who what, they the, the, the Warren oh, campaign. Yeah. What they should have said is, look, you got to remember, I'm from Oklahoma, and in that neck of the woods, everyone who can summon up even the ninety eighth of a drop of Native American blood does so and is very proud. You know, I grew up being told that I had Native American ancestors. I'm very proud of that fact. Now, people can make fun of me, and I can take a, I can take a joke, and I'm willing to laugh, or, laugh along, but that makes me no less proud, mm-hmm. period. Right, end of story. Seth, what yeah. do you, what, well, you know, what's your take I, on what I you should do? I can weigh on, or... in on this, because I'm actually, I'm, I grew up not far from Oklahoma, and, and we have narratives of this in our family, too, uh, going back, and, and my grandfather was born on an Indian reservation, um, my his his aunt lived on one, in fact, uh, in Oklahoma, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. But there's no indication that either one of them were born to people of Indian ancestry. And frankly, when you're from that area, just about everybody could probably trace some fractional mm-hmm. part of their blood to that. And if you're not a, I guess, a true-blooded American Indian, you in that area at least, you shouldn't go around saying it mm-hmm. and uh, making any sort of claim. And uh, the fact that she would, I I, I would think that people in Oklahoma would be very upset, especially uh, 
those uh, who are American Indian. You know, I once uh, was interviewing someone who kept telling me that he grew up on the reservation in mm-hmm. New York and in, in the Buffalo area, and I just, you know, figured out that he was Native American and the nephew was working for me for two years. Because no, I just lived on the res, but I kept saying that because I knew people would think I was yeah. Native American. <laughs> so right. I always appreciated that. We're going to take a quick break. We're looking at local news with John Roosh, Peter Kadzis, and Seth Daniel. I'm Sue O'Connell sitting in for Callie Crossley. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. We love our contributors. That means you... Ann Russell's, a family gardening tradition for over 135 years, with annuals, perennials, herbs and shrubs, bird baths, statuary, pots, plus jewelry, gifts, and toys. Russell's Garden Center, Route 20, Wayland. And one SIM card, mobile voice, text, and data service for budget-conscious international travelers. One SIM card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com. And Wind River Environmental, working to keep your septic system healthy to keep our environment safe and clean. Wind River Environmental proudly supports ongoing focus coverage on 89.7 WGBH. Next time on The World, an African far from home. I came to China kind of looking for American dream, you know. You must have read that on my profile, yeah. The online profile he's talking about is on a Nigerian social network that he built from scratch. Facebook, it's not, but it does connect the growing Nigerian community living in China. Gabuza.com, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. It's time to spring into action for the 47th annual WGBH Spring Auction. Bid on fine jewelry, gift certificates, exciting vacations, weekend getaways, and even a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealer. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. So not only will you get a great deal, you'll feel great while you're doing it. But act fast. The spring auction ends on May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. I'm Sue O'Connell, sitting in for Callie. If you're just tuning in, we're looking at the week in local news. Joining me to talk between the headlines are John Roosh, editor of the Jamaica Plain Gazette and the Mission Hill Gazette, Peter Kadzis, executive editor of the Boston Phoenix, and Seth Daniel, senior reporter of the independent news group, which includes the Revere Journal. You know, Seth, you've got one of these great stories of of a, a small company and uh, how the uh, the entire uh, a court case in Turkey yeah. is is affecting the entire area. So I'm just going to yeah. let you tell the story well, because it's got a lot of tw- it's a twist to it. So yeah, go the ahead. last thing you would think Chelsea has in common with anything is, is the, uh, the nation of Turkey. But it, <laughs> it has quite a bit lately. And uh, there's a small company called Arsenal Consulting. Uh, some background, there's a huge case, the most important one in like 50 years going on in Turkey right now. And uh, there's about 300 former military people who are on trial, and uh, they're uh, accused of a a coup of the government in like about 2003. Um, And there's supposedly these documents uh, on computer. And uh, this fellow in Chelsea with his small company was asked by one uh, one of the men who's on trial. His daughter teaches at Harvard, and he was asked to look into it. And so he got the evidence. He took some deep looks into it, as forensic people do. I don't understand it, um, but he looked into it. And uh, and the funny thing is he deep within the code, he found uh, like references to the font Calibri in Cambria. We've all seen those on Microsoft Word documents. The only problem is these documents are supposed to be from 2003. Those fonts weren't invented until 2007. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a gotcha, you know, and it's a great gotcha. And it, it is a really rippled um, the case over there. Um, people, I, I heard that the uh, the attorneys for the 300 defendants got up in unison and, and, and marched out. They marched out of the courtroom. It's never been done before. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty serious thing to do in Turkey. You could be put in jail for it. Um, 
So uh, people are paying attention, even to our story. We've gotten a ton. Of I was going to say, you've <laughs> got, you know, this is site. one of those like suddenly you see yeah. your server, you know, straining under exactly. the uh, the weight, and you can't quite figure out what so, it was. So, and the entire <laughs> nation of Turkey is visiting, yeah. right? Yeah, on the website. So far, we haven't seen anybody at the local Chelsea stores buying the paper copy <laughs> yet from Turkey. But yes, the website has experienced a lot of hits, and and from government officials over there, from mm-hmm. media over there, and they're citing it pretty. Uh, pretty regularly, and, and uh, I don't know if it'll have any effect on the case, but it, it's out there. That's a good point. Good point, John. Over at the, uh, you're, you're wishing you did that now, I, aren't you? I am. I'm so just like you're the Watson of the Sherlock Holmes of Chelsea, <laughs> the case of the ancient the missing, font or yeah, something. The, 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 it's what a great story. The missing yeah. serif. Um, <laughs> now you you've got uh, an interesting story at uh, I think the JP Gazette about the Catholic Church and the way and the sex and all of that. Another complicated uh, kind of uh, interesting. Uh, version of, of, of what we look at as Catholicism and mm-hmm. what really there's much more there than meets the eye for many yeah. of us. And this is another story that's sort of in motion, but it looks, you know, there's some pretty significant changes coming to our local Catholic parishes and maybe maybe throughout the archdiocese. Of course, the archdiocese doesn't return my call, so I don't know what <laughs> really what's up there. But uh, there's been a controversial upcoming change in the pastorship of our three merged Catholic parishes. Um uh, the current pastor has only been there about a year, and the uh, and they're bringing in a new guy from Revere, who mm-hmm. I think Seth Absolutely, can tell us something yeah. about. And um, you know, there's curiosity as to why uh, this change is going on. There's some indication that there's a, a, a movement for the church to become more evangelical, um, try to boost its membership. The uh, a new pastor coming in is involved in a movement called the Neo Catechumenal Way which thankfully can just be called the way for short. <laughs> it's been enormously controversial within the church um, uh, with uh, criticism as extreme as calling it heresy, uh, but it's also been uh, essentially approved by the current pope um, as kind of a new evangelical movement. It involves creating a subgroup um, of parishioners who kind of get private religious instruction and worship separately a little bit and so on and so forth. There's concerns that it can be divisive, uh, but it also obviously energizes people, gets them involved uh, in a new way. So uh, so there's some indications that this movement, uh, which does operate at the Revere Church, I understand, yes. may you know be coming to our parishes. And just what does that mean for people who attend, uh, as well as for the community a in general? A more traditional, a more you know, if you're yeah. attending a more traditional Catholic service or belong mm-hmm. to that church, and also the Mission Hill Church uh, is not. It, it, my understanding of it is that it's mm-hmm. also if it's not part of the Boston Archdiocese. Right, that's run by a separate order. A separate yeah, order as yeah, well. Mission Church. What do you know, Seth, about uh, about what's happening here? Well, well, the priest who's um, been transferred over is Father Carlos Flor, and, and I didn't even know about this until I read John's story. Uh, so he trumped me on that one, and I know him. I know Father Carlos pretty well. He's kind of really been a, a beacon for the uh, Spanish-speaking community in Revere. He's at the Immaculate Conception Parish, which traditionally was the Irish parish. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and is now, uh, it was, uh, if I remember correctly, it absorbed the Lady of Lords Church, which right. was in yeah. Beachmont we, as well. And it's, it's still on appeal. That church is still yep. appealing, and that's another story for another day. Another day. But yeah, this, um, this uh, parish has a huge um, Spanish-speaking population um, growing exponentially. He's been kind of the leader of that, and uh, the way um, I've, I've seen it, I've seen been to the meetings uh, that they have, and it's really kind of I I, I don't really understand exactly the um, you know the dogma of it all, but definitely it's like identifying your key players in the parish and then uh, sort of like giving them extra instruction and mm-hmm. sending them out, and and this is a very uh, evangelical parish, and he he is a very in- evangelical too. They go knocking on doors, um, mm-hmm. cold knocking on doors, inviting people to church. Peter, it's, I always think about uh, you know the parish set up in in uh, places like Jamaica Plain, and and how hard it might be for some folks to, uh, you know, it's hard enough obviously when their churches close or merge, but also to take on a new a new flavor might be difficult too. Well, um, you know the the Catholic parish that I would be affiliated with if I didn't go to an Episcopal church because I can't take the Catholic church anymore. I say that sadly and respectfully. But Our Lady of Lourdes um, is an increasingly Hispanic. um, uh, And and it it would be, and this is one of the parishes involved, and I'm actually tempted to just, you know, 
go and see for myself. I mean, it strikes me that there is, I know we, there are a number of Spanish evangelical churches, not Catholic, around. Mm-hmm. So it, it is certainly a, there's certainly a flavor mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. And I would expect that this would um, uh, show some promise mm-hmm. of, of, of of turning results. I mean, I know Our Lady of Lords Parish is a vigorous parish. I mean, um, yeah, and it's 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 in, in many ways good to see some some excitement about it as well. Yeah, but the, what 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 bothers me is the, the archdiocese really they closed the school a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, basically what they did is they said, well, okay, we'll open it if you can raise five hundred thousand dollars. Well, with a month's notice. Yeah, with a month's <laughs> notice. Well, you know what? The parents raised $500,000 with a month's notice, and then they closed the school. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Peter, I want to stay with you and, and circle back to Elizabeth Warren a little bit. You know, you've got a, a great editorial while we're busy talking, I think justifiably, about the, the Native American issue. She is making some strong statements, uh, especially in the news of this past week, about uh, reform that has to happen and is continuing to be a, a beacon of, of reality when it comes to uh, banking reform and finances. Uh, I might say the only beacon of reality in the United States. She, what, she, what Elizabeth Warren, who I love to make fun of sometimes, but on this banking issue, what she is saying is more important and more pertinent than what the president of the United States is saying. You know, Obama is really a somewhat of a Rockefeller Republican. Elizabeth Warren is a, a blue-collar Democrat, and she's not only calling for a return to the Glass-Steagall Act, which simply put means you have the conservative, you have like conservative savings banks that we know of on one side, and then you have on the other side of the wall, you know, the Wall Street pirates and the casino banks that make big risks, but you have them separate so they don't contaminate each other. I don't think she's gone far enough. And by the way, I I wouldn't be surprised if as the campaign comes on, she gets to this. These big money center banks, the the so-called too big to fail banks, need to be broken up. There was a study in England sponsored by the Bank of England, the equivalent of their Federal Reserve, not exactly a radical institution, that, you know, uh, set a standard and said, you know, beyond a certain point, a bank is just simply unmanageable. Not for any criminal or nefarious reasons. It's just too big to manage. And that's what happened at J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Warren is talking sense. And you know what? I'm surprised the degree to which people aren't listening to her. And... You know, I am not one to get into the gender politics here, but why is it that when women make sharp contract uh, uh, on the on target um, Criticism. criticisms of the largely male-dominated Wall Street, why aren't they listened to? Mm-hmm. Listen, um, way back during the Clinton years, the, the woman that headed the, the Commodities Future Exchange Commission tried to blow the whistle on derivatives. Frontline did a wonderful documentary about this. Well, the, the boys in the White House, the boys in the Treasury, the boys in the Federal Reserve, and the boys in Wall Street ganged up and silenced her. Mm-hmm. You know, Elizabeth Warren is, is I think, a victim of, you know, not only Republican politics, but of, of sexist attacks. Mm-hmm. Seth, what, you know, let's assume for the sake of argument that Elizabeth Warren's Native American thing, you know, the, the playing field becomes equal <laughs> sure. again. You know, we could uh-huh. talk about Scott Brown and his daughter being on his health oh, insurance yeah. and all that. But it's mm-hmm. an equal playing field. And I've had the opportunity to talk to Candidate Warren, and when mm-hmm. she talks about financial issues, she is impassioned mm-hmm. and she is right, you yeah. know. And to the, to me, they seem like very conservative ideas, mm. you know. And I mean conservative in terms of the best part of the Republican Party. What does she need to do to be able to connect with people around these messages? I mean, not just mm-hmm. Democrats or Republicans, sure. but just uh, people. I said this the last time. Uh, she needs to stop being a professor, and I don't know if she can, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because um, this this happened uh, in the Dor- in the Dorchester uh, area when she went out there. This happened in Revere too, and they people are like, ah, she just seems like a professor. At certain certain points, she turns on the, uh, the I'm going to tell you what's best for you, and and I'll tell you in Revere especially. Mm-hmm. They, they, they'll just turn around and walk away um, because they do not want to be told. Tell me, not for nothing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I don't know. She, that's what she's got to overcome. And, and I remember her telling the Dorchester reporter, I'm going to do 
uh, my very best to to stop that. You know, yeah. I don't know if she has. John, I mean, it's it's it it's it speaks somewhat of the uh, Al Gore elitist issue, you know, and also the rap that was against Obama being an elite. I mean, I've always felt that I I want elite people to be doing things for me. I want you know an elite doctor. I want the best mm-hmm. of the best. Uh, however, you judge that, and and. You know, having if your your son or daughter were a professor, you'd be bragging like crazy about it. But suddenly, having a professor as a candidate doesn't seem like a good idea. How does she overcome that that gap? I'd say, well, I don't know that she does, but I, you know, practice would make perfect. And I do think it's a good sign that she's at least going to these places and talking to people, not just coming to JP, where she's going to get the votes anyway. I mean, that that is important and it's crucial. I hope she's listening as much as she's talking uh, or more. That would be helpful, too. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, some people just have the 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 style issues. But put yourself out there. Peter, Mm -hmm. we would be uh, remiss this week if we didn't uh, chat about WFNX and the announcement made last uh, the other day that WFNX after 20, 30 years. I mean, 29 years. 29 years will be uh, going af- uh, off the air. FNX uh, is part of the Phoenix Media Communications Group, of which uh, the Phoenix is part of. I'm a former employee. I'm a client of that uh, in the full disclosure world. But it's uh, a sad day for Boston Radio and radio in general. FNX, a great alternative station, never one making buckets of money, uh, always a labor of love from my experience for the folks yeah. over at the Phoenix. Uh, but uh, right now, this morning, Julie Kramer, who'd been on the air for 24 years, did her final show, and they're looking to wrap it up. Yeah, well, it's going to be the the only good news, and it's, it's, it's sort of dim good news, but the station will be on the air for two to three months. You know, that's about how long it takes the FCC, the process, the paperwork. Could happen sooner. Um, I hope not. Um, and, you know, we fought the good fight for as long as we could, but the, you know, operating a lone, a standalone independent station in the monopoly environment was tough. I got to say, the New York Times story on this really made me feel good because, you know, they were out of town and they were authoritative and they they called it, you know, the legendary mm-hmm. WFNX. Yeah. It's also hard, you know, folks don't understand how the ratings happen, but when your your audience is a young adult college audience. With no phones. With, with no, no phones. Landlines. In, the, yeah. in the old days even, they, you know, that yeah. weren't going to respond to a survey. It was very hard to get ratings I mean, not that you didn't have listeners, but as the concerts would prove when you, you had Green show, Day. And, you you know. have a concert and you'd have more people than you could. And listen, people don't realize, you know, some people of a certain age, us, realize that, you know, we were the first station to play Pearl Jam or And Nirvana. the first commercial station was a gay or lesbian radio show, Thank 1 you. in 10. Hosted, hosted by. Me. And um, it was also the first um, radio broadcast that Jerry Seinfeld made. Wow. You know, back wow. in 1987, he was appearing at uh, a, a comedy club in Harvard Square, and someone from FNX had the wit to book this rising uh, comic on. But no, I mean, we, we've brought acoustic music to the MFA where, you know, uh, you know, very electronic bands are playing in front of a sarcophagus. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, it's 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 really sad. It's like a it, it's it's like a death in the family. And um, well, I'm sure we'll be talking more about it as as the months yeah. go on. I hope. Well, we've been talking local news with John Roosh, editor of the Jamaica Plain Gazette and Mission Hill Gazette, Peter Kadzis, executive editor of the Boston Phoenix, and Seth Daniel, senior reporter of the independent news group, which includes the Revered Journal. From local news, we're going to talk through the latest in pop culture headlines with our analysts Thomas Conley and Rachel Rubin. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you, 
and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And Sherlock, season two ends as criminal mastermind Jim Moriarty steals the crown jewels and poses Sherlock with an inescapable problem. Don't miss Sherlock on Masterpiece, Sunday night at 9 on WGBH 2. On the next Fresh Air, we listen back to an interview with Donna Summer. She's died of cancer at the age of 63. One of the best singers of the disco era, her hits included Bad Girls, Last Dance, Hot Stuff, and On the Radio. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. This summer... You'll count on public radio to keep you connected to stories like this. With Mitt Romney all but certain to be the party's nominee, many voters... President Obama is rolling out an economic message that's squarely aimed at college students. Athletes, journalists, and fans are getting ready to converge on London. Help 89.7 get to the stories you care about and give a little bit more in support of a lot more coverage. To go above and beyond with an additional gift, just click the Donate button at WGBH.org. I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, why our schools are failing to train enough students in math and science. Saturday morning at 7 here on 89.7 WGBH. It's ragtime, a view of the week's pop culture happenings. It's an examination of the salacious, the ridiculous, and everything in between. But this, of course, being public radio, we'll conduct our review with the help of some highbrow analysts. Our pointy-headed poobahs of pop culture, Rachel Rubin, the chair of the Department of American Studies at UMass Boston. Thomas Connolly is a professor of English at Suffolk University. Welcome back to both of you. Good to Good see, see you. Hello again. So we start with some sad news. It seems like we've had just a rash of uh, folks from the music industry and recording industry being taken from us too young. Of course, we're talking about uh, Donna Summer. Let's take a listen. I know we just heard a snippet of it, but let's hear a little bit more of Bad Girls. Of course, Rachel, this is one of those great multi-layered songs, which, uh, you know, to the, the quick listen is a disco song about uh, prostitutes or how you want to be a bad girl. But uh, without too much deep scratching at it, you can see that there's a whole lot going on here. There's a lot there. And I think that really is, is the best thing you can say about Donna Summer, who, by the way, we should say a native of Dorchester mm-hmm. and a, a student at UMass Boston. Um but that that her songs are a lot of fun and they're great to dance to. You know, that's that's what disco was for. But also they're serious. And so bad girls and, and I'm thinking in particular um, of she works hard for the money. Mm-hmm. They're about working women. And so she was, you know, making party songs about work, which I think is just a sort of great way of looking at popular music generally. It's a way in which people, you know, they use the music to make sense of their lives. And work is a huge part of that. And she was really good at both of those things. Yeah, the, the bad girl's part about being the commodity herself, which she was always very aware of. Very, very aware you know, of. Mm-hmm. Going mm-hmm. back and forth between the subject of the song and being, you know, the watcher as well as the watchy. Mm-hmm. And, and reminding us that that's a kind of work. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm wondering, you know, Tom... Why do we always have to wait for people to die to do this sort of investigation? I mean, it's a, it's a it's a sort of rhetorical question because I know it's how it is. I've been a Donna Summer fan uh, since uh, you know my my teenage years, a huge huge fan, and did papers in college on her and produced a radio show about her. Had the great you know gift to be able to meet her and work with her, and she was just a tr- you know lived up to everything a fan would want. You know, I know these things, but I'm always like, oh, why, you know, why do they have to die for us to mm-hmm, really get mm-hmm. that kind of broad... It's you know. true. The, you know, the, the serious appreciation, particularly of a pop diva, idol, the, the, the likes of Donna Summer, uh, forces us to ask, what does appreciation mean? And being a fan 
isn't enough sometimes to take you to the serious level, but also it would detract, you know, from a lot of things Rachel was just saying about the, the nature of her songs and, and pop songs in general. And her, her particular presence was so strong in the disco world. Her identity and her voice, I, I don't mean her singing voice, I mean her personal voice, her whole approach to being a star was, was what set her apart. And I think it was so strong that it was a wave that everyone just wanted to ride rather than as we we're doing right now, stopping and thinking mm -hmm. about it, even though the lyrics and the, the songs that she made lent themselves to, the, to that. Yeah. And the electronic music. I mean, yeah. the, the electronic pop that we hear today in clubs, Giorgio Moroder and that whole Casablanca uh, record sound was a, definitely a collaboration, to which in those days, and even now, you know, the, 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 the lead singer, female singer over a producer's uh, 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 way, you know, the producers pretty much ruled disco, but Donna was very much collaborative with them in mm -hmm. writing songs and, and directing them as well. So, so Rachel, I want to talk a little bit too about as we're on the divas here. Uh, let's take a little bit to uh, someone who will be joining the X Factor. It's Miss Britney Spears here on the Kelly Crossley Show. Well, first of all, I'm so excited about this whole experience. It's going to be so much fun and so different from anything I've ever done. And I'm ready to find the true star. She's so excited. Mm -hmm. Are you as excited? I can't say I'm excited, but I'm not <laughs> I'm not surprised. You know, I mean, the, Christina Aguilera is a judge on one of these shows now, and they came up through Disney together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is like, you know, you have to say F. Scott Fitzgerald was wrong. There are second acts in American culture. And right now, you know, they're judging these contests on television. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what Hollywood Squares was for Paul Lind. <laughs> That's a good you know. point. You know, I read uh, before Jennifer Lopez joined uh, the American Idol uh, uh, judge panel, someone I think at Huffington Post said, you know what Jennifer Lopez needs to do right now? She needs to become a judge. Mm -hmm. And it seems mm -hmm. as soon as she did, things started looking up for J-Lo. So, you know, Britney has this huge army of, of fans that just adore her in the way that Paula um, Abdul did, in mm -hmm. the way that uh, uh, J-Lo does. Could be a second or third coming for Britney. It's interesting. I mean, second act, third, fourth act. I mean, this is, you know, indicative of the way media works now. Uh, I've read a couple of articles about this that Britney Spears has seemed, even though she's still a singer and still has millions of musical fans, they feel cut off from her because she hasn't been doing anything to interact with them. And this is the way it is now in the as we're in the second decade of the 21st century. It's not enough just to be in the movies or on television or sing songs. You've also got to be constantly available to your fans, and they have to know what you're thinking, what you're saying. If you're going to fall on your face, you've got to do it in public and you know pick yourself up and admit it or laugh about it or start a lawsuit. But you <laughs> cannot stay in the studio. And I think that's what has caused her to do this. You know, it's a great career move. Well, Johnny Carson's been uh, retired for 20 years, and PBS is uh, ready to make him an American master. Let's take a listen to uh, what somebody else has to say about him, the great Jerry Seinfeld. You know, for my entire career, I've heard comedians in bars debate over who do you think is going to get The Tonight Show after Johnny leaves. What nobody realized is that when you left, you were going to pack it up and take it with you, which is what he did, because that show never existed again. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. You know, Tom, I, I, it's so, uh, to me, I just think Seinfeld eloquently puts it. I think back on the Johnny Carson show, and there is nothing like it now. Well, I, it's, it's true. But I think it's because broadcast television mm -hmm. isn't like that anymore. And even the last couple of seasons of uh, Johnny Carson's reign, it was clearly eroding. Um, Johnny Car Most of the things that we associate with Johnny Carson, he took from other performers. The, the Mighty Carson art players, he took from Fred Allen. And uh, Johnny Carson, if he were sitting in this studio, he would say, yes, I did. Mm -hmm. uh, he never claimed to be an original. What he did was perfect this. He didn't, he's not an innovator. And that's, I don't want to be a naysayer, but I'm a little standoffish about calling him an American master, because usually these shows are about innovators, mm -hmm. people who have created something. What Carson did was to solidify something. And yes, he made the greatest talk show in history. Yes, 
uh, television stations all over the world tried to imitate it and failed. But of course they would. They don't have the same markets. They don't have the same audience. And uh, it is true. I mean, after he left, it wasn't the same. But there still are there are still reverberations. And it was interesting. Conan O'Brien even made references to the problems he went through not being able to get into the 1130 slot and so forth. And even David Letterman made it clear that he still was feeling pain that he didn't take over Johnny's spot. So I, I think Jerry Seinfeld is, is, is more interested in identifying himself in the historical momentum of Johnny Carson because that's what he would say made him a star, which mm -hmm. that's fine. But uh, I think it, it, Carson's more complicated than just, you know, the guy who invented the talk show. That's that's completely wrong. Rachel, you're nodding in agreement. I, yeah, I'm, I'm more or less. I, I feel that, you know, what, what Johnny Carson really did was sort of bring a kind of, you know, aw shucks conservatism out to California at the time when people were going out there to be hippies. And in fact, you know, many people believe that when Johnny Carson wore a Nehru jacket on the show, that that marked the end of the counterculture. It was over. It had been commodified, packaged for, you know, Johnny Carson was doing it. And the, the Tiny Tim wedding with Miss Vicky, yes. too. I mean, that, you know, alternative lifestyle, forget it. So, you know, I, I wouldn't yeah. say that he's not an innovator because he failed to be an innovator, but that he never intended to be an innovator. It was sort of about the opposite of that. It was, you know, much more about um, uh, sort of solidifying convention and comfort. Yeah, I was uh, when I think of Johnny Carson's show, and I think of the the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I think of reliability. I mean, I I just always remember getting something. You know, it, it would. I mean, be... in general, television is much more about repetition and sameness mm -hmm. right. than yeah. it is about innovation. True, so. true. I mean, if if, you, if we could play a clip of the Tonight Show theme. How many millions of people wouldn't even have to close their eyes to be able to envision the step-by-step, beat-by-beat <laughs> opening of The Tonight Show ending up with the golf swing? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the so conventionalized. Well, that was great. I mean, I'm, 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 not, I'm flat complimenting that. Yeah. One of the things I'm, uh, I'm thrilled about today in our, our language is the, the term first world problem. You know, I, I've, uh, I've, I, I'm, I'm happy to see that third world was was replaced with developing world. But I'd, I'd gladly bring third world back if I could use first world over and over again, especially when we're talking to our kids. The our very uh, starlit Halle Berry, uh, although you know she's probably not starlit. It anymore. dropped the lid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. she's a star. <laughs> I still think of her as being very, very young, though. So Halle Berry has decided that she's got a first-world problem that she needs to bring to President Obama's attention, and that is one of the paparazzi. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, she's particularly upset about the paparazzi having tried to take a photograph of, of her child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing is, I mean, I sort of, I agree, first world problem. She's not going to be able to take it to Obama, I don't think. But, you know, the thing that really gets me is, you know, I just keep thinking of the picture of her showing off her pregnant belly on the cover of <laughs> In Style magazine. So if you use the child, if you use the pregnancy for your own publicity when it suits you, then the flip side of that is the people are going to keep taking pictures of the kid, right? They're not, you can't just like flip that switch on and off, you know, for better or for worse. So it's hard for me to work up too much sympathy, frankly. And also a lot of people are complaining there are already laws on the books in California doing what she is asking President Obama to do. So, I mean, if she wants this, if, if she goes to a different state, but it, it is, it's always, I think it's always hard to feel much sympathy for celebrities who say, oh, you know, the tyranny of fame, I'm shackled by my fans. You know, it, it's like when, when even Johnny Carson on that show, he said, the reason I went into show business was because I'm shy. I never believed that for a second. Right, but at the yeah. same time to Johnny Carson, you know, he lived a very private life. You know, and he, some people do. And yes. some people right. are yes. successful at it. Some people their kids, yeah. they don't stay right there. You know, we, I think, talked about Meryl Streep on yes. here, right? Yes. So she, Donna, even Donna Summer. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you look at, she's been out of that spotlight. I mean, she mm -hmm. hasn't been demanding that kind of spotlight, but you do move out and keep your business, you know, in New York or L.A. or wherever you yeah. are. It can so be done. It yeah. can be done. It can be done. Well, one show, I, you know, every now and then a show comes that I have never seen. And it's always exciting to me because I watch so much television. <laughs> and one show that I have never seen in its entirety, a whole episode, is Desperate Housewives. And it's I know it's shocking. And it's not for any judgment issue. It's just that for a while I worked on Sunday nights and then I couldn't catch up. And then do I want to add another you know, family member to my TV viewing? But we're going to take a listen right now to uh, the trailer for the season finale of Desperate Housewives. 
ABC next Sunday. You can't give in to blackmail. If I don't, he'll go to the police. It's the season finale of Desperate Housewives. I need you to take me to a hospital. The women on Wisteria Lane. Angie's in trouble. She told me everything. I have to leave the home where I raised my children. We'll have one fatal ending. Tell me where the bomb is now. I can't do this ABC's Desperate Housewives season finale. Next Sunday, 9, 8 central on ABC. Tom, what's happening? It's the, not, it's the series finale. <laughs> the series, I mean, it's over. Yeah, it's over. Um, I, I suppose everybody's seen it by now. Now, to my uh, shame... Spoiler, spoiler alert. To my shame, I have seen every episode Yay. of Desperate Housewives. It, the first couple of seasons were, were satirical. I enjoyed it very much for that. And then maybe for penance or self-punishment, I watched it to the bitter end. Uh, but the, the, in a way, the series became a misnomer, too, because all of the women in the show at one time or another worked outside of the home. Uh, they were never, to put a, you know, the, the traditional pejorative, they were never merely housewives. Uh, the show brought up uh, issues of color, issues of gender, issues of sexuality in a way that shows that network television is able to deal with things in a, a very broad-based way. I also found the characters on that show much more interesting than the supposedly cutting-edge hip characters on Modern mm -hmm. Family. I found yep. the development and usage, the even language sometimes, much more interesting than what's on Modern Family. But the show definitely time to go. ran its course. <laughs> time to go. <laughs> it was definitely time to go. Are you a fan, Rachel? Well, uh, yeah, I'm very interested in certain things about the show. And it does seem, particularly at the beginning, like it's going to be primarily concerned with the roles of women. And if you think about the title that's over the over the opening credits where it shows different women you know through history sort of doing different things but I think that by the end of the show um, the show became about something else and that is suburbia and you know it's it's filmed on the set of leave it to beaver mm -hmm. for crying out loud <laughs> yeah. right, right? right and the women are always telling each other how lucky they are to have their suburban idol and how much they want to protect it and it's rotten there actually it turns out to be not so wonderful you know and on so by so many levels so many levels, yeah. like every catastrophe you could think of and a few you can't, you know, happen. <laughs> and by the end of it, most of them, the lucky ones have fled and the other ones are going to be tormented. So I think it, there was kind of either a bait and switch or an evolution, depending on how you look at it. And it really ends up being a sort of statement on, you know, on, on the whole suburban move. From a TV making standpoint, too, it was also sort of the openly gay producing of yes, the show, yes. I think it might have been. I mean, certainly this has happened before, Absolutely, but yeah. you know, there was definitely a gay male stamp yes, on this yes. that you know has gone on. And it also, I mean, it, it's directly responsible for the for the Real Housewives franchise. Right, right. I mean, this is interesting—a drama, you know, spawning reality shows. And it's in, just the last seconds of the last episode. Definitely picking up on what you just said, Rachel. It's absolutely a Pandora. Literally, there's a Pandora's box oh as the final image. I think I'm going to have to Netflix the whole thing. <laughs> We're going out on Booker T in the MG's Green Onions. Uh, bassist Donald Duck Dunn died earlier this week. This wraps up another edition of Ragtime, a review of this week's pop culture news with Professor Rachel Rubin and Professor Thomas Connolly. I'm Sue O'Connell in for Callie Crossley. I'll be back on Monday to discuss what our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans are facing as more of them come home. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH Boston Public Radio.